1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. We're going to get right to business this morning. The subject for the last four weeks has been salvation. He has been talking about salvation. The way that we think about salvation as we look at the scriptures and examine what salvation is, salvation is deliverance from and deliverance to. We talk about this a lot. It's deliverance from the pollution of sin. It is deliverance from the power of sin. It is deliverance from the presence of sin, ultimately. It it is deliverance from the penalty of sin, right? And then it's deliverance to, on this side to the power of Christ's righteousness, to the purity of Christ's righteousness, to the very presence of Jesus Christ. All right? And so it's a wonderful deliverance, deliverance from and deliverance to. And and he's been talking about this in various nuanced ways throughout this doxology that he's given in verses 3 to 12, which we read earlier. And he is saying, you have the hope of salvation in verses 3 to 5. You've got something that you can take to the bank. You've got something that you can count on. This salvation is something that you can rejoice in, he says in verses 6 to 9. He says, though you've got, you've got terrible trials, you've got all kinds of problems in your life, the, the people that you're living around don't like you, they're persecuting you, it's not a good deal, but you can rejoice today because you've got salvation. And then he says you've got the grace of salvation. And so this, this salvation is something that the prophets searched and inquired all the days of their life trying to figure out what is it going to be like? Who's going to reveal it? How glorious is that, is that going to be? And not only that, you've got angels, holy angels, who, who even get the blessing of being around the throne of Jesus Christ himself, looking down at the salvation that you have and say, wow, this is amazing. I'd like to know more about that experience. And with him saying all of that, we come to verse 13, and he has that word, therefore. Therefore. All right? Now, if you read the New Testament, especially the New Testament epistles very much, you realize that Christianity is really built on this word, therefore. So often what happens is that the New Testament writers, they they build all of the truth, and the theology and the reality of your spiritual life and your spiritual condition on what's called indicative statements. Statements of reality. Statements of who you are. Statements about where you're going. Statements about how much Jesus loves you and how much Jesus has done for you. And then, he, then they normally hit you with this word, therefore. They say, therefore, and then they, they give you the commands in which you are to follow based upon those indicatives. All right, those commands in Greek are called imperatives. Do this. Don't do that. Respond this way. Don't respond that way based on the salvation that you have been given. And that's exactly what's going on 
in verses 13 to 17. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to give you four responses. Four responses to your salvation. Four proper responses to the salvation that you have been given. So that you can enjoy God and glorify Him forever. That's what I want to give you this morning. Alright? And so the first response to this glorious salvation is this. Get your mind right. Get your mind right. Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. This word gird, the only time it's actually, this specific word is used in the New Testament, it, it, it pictures ancient Near Eastern men who all wore robes, garments that were long and flowing all the way down beyond their feet, and they walked around, and the more... And, and the bigger and the more glorious and beautiful the robe, the more honor that you bestowed if you were a man as you walked through the marketplace and into the synagogue and into the temple and all of that. But it was pretty heavy. It was pretty thick. It was very long. And so whenever the, the phrase gird was used, especially gird up the loins, the idea is that they would actually take up their robe and they would tuck it into their girdle or their belt would be a more manly way to say it. They would put it in, into their belt and they would tuck it in on the right and on the left and in the back so that if they needed to run somewhere, if they needed to go on a long journey where they would be walking, or if they were going into battle as a warrior, they would be able to move freely. They would be able to run as hard as they needed to run. They would need to be able to move uh, with agility and with ability like they wouldn't if their robe was flowing. Uh, the phrase is used in Exodus chapter 12 when, when uh, God is instituting the Passover he said, I want you to celebrate the Passover meal. I want you to enjoy it. I want this to be something that you celebrate forever. But he says, I want you to eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. Why? Because Egypt was going to be coming after them. And they had to be ready to move freely and fastly, right, in order to get to where God wanted them to be. It's also used in 1 Kings 18. We know about the prophet Elijah, and in that chapter is where he defeats all the, the Baal prophets. Remember that? But, but at the end of that chapter, it says that Elijah actually girded up uh, his loins, really of his robe, and he ran and he beat Ahab to Jezreel. And so Peter here is instructing us not to take our baggy clothes and tuck them in a little bit tighter. He's actually telling us to take our baggy thoughts, our baggy ambitions, our baggy affections, our baggy uh, distractions. He's saying, gird them up, pull them up, and tuck them into your mind, all right, so that you can be ready, so that you can be prepared, so that you are at ready at a moment's notice to live for the glory of God and be ready for the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter taught this, I'm um, sorry, Luke, uh, Jesus taught it in Luke 12. Jesus said, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. He goes on to tell a story about a master and his servants and, and how they wait. And, and in verse 40 of Luke 12, he says, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says, be ready. We are constantly tempted to be distracted 
by a hundred different thoughts, a hundred different desires, a hundred different worries. Many of them are legitimate. A lot of them are illegitimate. But church, would you not agree that we are often distracted by what's going on in our mind and even in our heart? Can you picture your mind as a long flowing robe and sometimes it's just like it's everywhere like it, it's just I don't even know what I'm supposed to be thinking right now because I've got all these different thoughts and desires and words and anxieties and Peter knew that and he's saying that's why you've got to gird up the loins of your mind I want to say this there are few things more dangerous than an unguarded mind You are a slave to your circumstances when you don't have an unguarded mind. You are a slave to your environment when you don't have an unguarded mind. You are a slave to your flesh. You are a slave even to Satan's devices when your mind is not girded up and guarded by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And I also want to say this, that the battle for the Christian life is won or lost every single day in your mind. It is. I've lost plenty of battles. And you want me to tell you why? Because it started in my mind. I was ungirded in my, in my nature and in my thinking, and I lost the battle that day. Peter would say, don't lose the battle. Gird up the loins of your mind. Start thinking the thoughts of God. Start longing for the glory of God. Start seeking and pursuing His honor and His praise and His wisdom. Because a life of worship begins with a life of thinking my brother my middle brother lives in nashville tennessee and he's a collegiate golf coach and he is notorious around uh, his family and around his players to use the phrase get your mind right get your mind right and what he normally means that when he's talking to his players is guys you're about to hit the next shot. You can't be thinking about what's going to happen three holes from now. You can't be happening, thinking about what's happening in the tournament three days from now. You've got to hit this next seven iron right here. You've got to make this putt. You've got to know the read. Don't get all of these distractions out of your mind and get your mind right and focused right now. He is so adamant about getting your mind right. A lot of times we'll show up for Thanksgiving or, or Christmas and he'll look at Carson and Cody and say, Y'all got your mind right? And uh, I'm just like, dude, it's Christmas, you know, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's the way he thinks. And I, you know, I admire him for that. But it's, it's all about staying focused on the things, you know, that are at hand. And that's what Peter would say to us. And on the heels of saying, gird up the loins of your mind, he says, be sober. Think rightly. You know, what is the op opposite of uh, being sober? What's the opposite of being sober? Drunk. Being intoxicated, Right. And, and what Peter is talking about here, certainly um, intoxication, uh, drunkenness uh, with wine is certainly would include this, but that's not where he's focusing in on. He's focusing in on any type of intoxication or drunkenness that keeps you from thinking rightly and having the right kinds of affections and longings for God himself. Whenever we are not thinking the thoughts of God, running after the glory of God, and pursuing His honor and praise and His holiness in our life. You know what we are? We're drunk with this world. We're drunk with our flesh. We're intoxicated with fleshly pleasures and desires and anxieties. And Peter would say, stop it. Be sober. Set your mind on Christ. Look over at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. 
he uses the same word here, sober. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. All right? The world's about to come to the end as we know it, he says. Therefore, be serious and sober. Some of your versions say watchful. The word is the same in the Greek. Be sober in your prayers. Because I want to tell you something. Prayer is a huge part of being spiritually sober. Prayer is. I tell you what, when you pray consistently and you pray passionately, you're going to live soberly. When you revert, when you go back away from prayer, and you might utter up a few praises to God every now and again or say grace at, at, at lunch, but not really engage with God in prayer, let me tell you something. You are getting drunk on the world, you're getting drunk on your flesh, and you're getting drunk according to how Satan wants to use you. Peter would urge us. He would say, be sober and do it through prayer. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 8. The very first thing he says, same word. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. When you're spiritually sober, then you are prepared for an attack by your greatest and most strongest enemy. But when you're not sober, you better look out. You're opening up yourself to significant and serious and detrimental attack upon your soul and upon your life. You know, when I was in high school and even in college, my classmates lived for the weekend. I don't know if you had classmates that were like that. I don't know if you were like that. But literally, from the time I was from the 10th grade on in through my senior year, the constant source of conversation was, what are we going to do on Friday night? What are we going to do on Saturday night? What's the party going to look like? And then what are we going to look like on Sunday morning? And it was constantly looking toward the weekend. And though I didn't have an awesome grasp of the gospel, I did profess Christ during that time. And I, I kept thinking to myself, surely, surely there's something a better key to life, to understand life, rather than living for the weekend. Like, can't you organize your life or tap into some source so that you don't have to look to Saturday and Sunday, but you can live with joy on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? And I think what, what Peter would say here is he would say, you need to tap into the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to find joy at the foot of the cross. You need to fi find an affection and a longing for the glorious Savior so that you can have a life, so that you're not living for the weekend, but you're joyfully living every day for His glory with great happiness. Now, I want to I steal a principle. I don't know who first originated it, but I know that it has been at the Wilds camp for a number of years that some of our girls have gone to, and uh, even uh, uh, Daniel went to last year. And uh, it's this principle, y'all. And uh, if you're taking notes, I think it would be a good one to take down. You say what you say, and you do what you do, because you think what you think. You think what you think, because you believe what you believe about God, about the gospel, and about His Word. I'll repeat it. You say what you say, and you do what you do because you think what you think. And you think what you think because you believe what you believe about God, His gospel, and His truth. 
Peter, I believe, would put his stamp of approval on that principle. And I think he would say, start thinking thoughts after God. Start resolving yourself to meditate on Christ. Start opening your Bible to be fed and nourished and nurtured by the Scriptures and about, by the Gospel. And start praying back to God the words and the truth and the promises of God. And gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. I'm not going to take the time. I've written out a number of applications from Proverbs 4.23, but I want to ask you to write down Proverbs 4.23. And I want you to meditate on that, that uh, verse at some point this week. Meditate on that verse. Guard your heart. He could be saying, guard your mind with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. Get your mind right. Get your mind right, Redeemer Church. All right, listen. Get your mind right. Gird up the loins of it and begin to walk toward Christ. Amen? Amen? Come on now. Number two, put all your hope in Jesus Christ. Put all your hope in Jesus Christ. He says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the controlling command of the passage. The other two verbs that were used in, in your Bibles, they were in imperative kind of tense. They were saying, do this. They were really what we call participles. They were saying, as you're doing this, he's leading right here as the controlling command. If, you're, if you listen to anything, listen to this. He says, rest your hope on the grace that is to be found at the revelation of Jesus. Now, what is hope? We talked about it a few weeks ago. We talked about what hope is. Literally, it means to confidently look forward to the future because you think the future has something wonderful to behold. All right? But spiritually, it means putting your faith in future grace. Putting your faith in future grace. See, he's not stopped talking about grace here. He's still talking about it. Do you realize, like Mark, when you got saved, you experienced grace? Like you were forgiven of your sin, you were reconciled to God, you experienced the redemption of your life. I mean, it was a glorious thing. But grace isn't done with you. There is still a grace to enjoy, right? When you get to see Jesus and you get to stand in that throne room and you're part of the thousands of thousands, you know what you're going to be able to say there? Grace. I don't deserve this. This is unbelievable. Except I see it because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so he says, hope in that. Rest your hope fully on the revelation of Christ himself. And then he uses this word fully because he's, he's saying don't do it half-heartedly. Don't do it indecisively. Do it with finality. Do it with no equivocation. Do it with no doubt because you believe in the promises of God. I'm going to read a couple of passages to you. Paul says, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait it with perseverance he says may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the holy spirit i was reading a, a line from c.s lewis this week and i want to i'd like to repeat it to you listen to this c.s lewis says if christianity is false it is of no importance if christianity is true it is of infinite importance. 
the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I just happened to be studying this part of the, the passage when I read that. And so I wrote, the same exact thing can be said about your future and your hope. Set your hope fully on Christ because He is of infinite value. Don't hedge your bets. Either go all in or all out. But don't play both ends to the middle. Either put your hope fully in Christ or put it fully in yourself or in this world or whatever you want to put it in. But don't go halfway. God is dishonored by a halfway hope. There is a grace that is to be brought to you. And in hoping for that grace and anticipating that, that reunion that you have with Jesus, what you are saying is that I have fully put all of my eggs in the basket of God's promises. And I believe His promises. I trust in His promises. And I'm not going to set up a life that, that may give me a fallback plan in case His promises don't come true. No, I'm going to go all in with Him. So put all your faith and all of your hope in Christ. If you want to write down a cross-reference, write down Romans 4, verses 16 to 20. Because Paul gives Abraham as an example. And he says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God. Abraham was 100 years old. His wife was 90 years old. And he'd been given this promise that they were going to have a child. And in that child, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And though his life was, was basically dead, he didn't give up on the promise. He hoped, what Paul says, he hoped in a hope uh, against hope. In other words, it looked humanly impossible. It looked unbelievable. But, but Abraham still believed in it. And what did God do? He fulfilled his promise. And the same is going to be for, true, for you. The same is going to be true for me. We must believe in it and trust in it all the way. Now listen, this week I was reading an account of a, of a, of a Jewish man in World War II who was in a concentration camp. And just like all Jews in concentration camps during World War II, they were miserable, they were discouraged, they were unhealthy. And this particular man had been a composer and a songwriter. And uh, he came up to another man and he said, I had a dream last night. And in that dream, uh, the person asked me, um, what do you want to know? And he said, I, I told him about this dream that I just want to know when we're going to get freed. When is this war going to be over for me? And he said, you know what he told me? He told me March 30th. March 30th. I'm looking forward to March 30th. Well, as the weeks began to come and uh, counting down the days, news came into the concentration camp that the war wasn't going well. And the man began to get discouraged. But by the time March 29th came, the man got really sick. On March the 30th, he became incoherent, and he lost uh, co uh, co cohesion with his thoughts. He was laid down, and on March 31st, he died. People who looked at him said he died of typhus. But the person who was giving the count said he died because he lost all hope. Hope is the most important thing that you and I could possibly possess. Let me tell you something. When we think about the hope that we have, 
and what we're looking forward to, we're not resting it on a dream. We're not resting it on an idea. We're not just trying to think the most positive thoughts. Listen, y'all, we have a Savior who not only died and was not just buried, but he rose from the dead. He revealed himself to 500 people who many of them went and lived lives and gave their lives because they saw this resurrected Savior. In Acts 1, 9-11, the angels said, as, as Jesus ascended into heaven, into the cloud of glory, they said, oh, don't worry, because he's going to come back just the way he came. Listen, listen, y'all, we're not hoping against hope. We are hoping in something that is real, that is certain, that is fixed. Fix your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that will be revealed to you. All right, so the third action step as a response to your salvation is reject your old way of life. Reject your old way of life. As obedient children, he says, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. First, I think, simple observation that we, that we make here is he says, as obedient children, that's implying that God's children are obedient. It's implying that God's children are not marked by disobedience. God's children are and should be marked by a submission, a glad submission to Him. But He says, don't conform yourselves. Don't be shaped by. Don't be fashioned after the former lusts which you had which were in your ignorance. All right, what is he talking about? He's talking about sinful desires, thoughts, longings, appetites that were all not for the glory of God, for the glory of your own self. And he says, get rid of that. I want you to hold your place right here, and I want you to go over to Colossians. Colossians is a few books back. It was Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Because I think what, what Peter is getting at is exactly what Paul exposits. In Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Get your mind right. All right? Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, notice these themes here, they're the same. When He appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. What's the next word, church? Therefore, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Sexual immorality, uncleanness, Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What is Paul saying here? He's saying you're dead to those things. You're dead to fornication. You're dead to uncleanness. You're dead to passions. You're dead to evil desires. You're dead to covetousness. Don't think that those things have to be you. They don't. You are a new creation. You've been born again, he says, essentially. Look at verse 6. Because of these things... The wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Now, he calls unbelievers the sons of disobedience. 
what does he say in 1 Peter chapter 1? He says, as children of obedience. As obedient children. You see the contrast there? Like, Adam, you're not any longer characterized as a disobedient child. You're characterized as an obedient child, as a son of obedience, a child of obedience. So look, he says, don't go back into that life in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now, you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, you're dead to anger. Wrath, you're dead to wrath. Malice, you're dead to malice. Blasphemy, you're dead to blasphemy. Filthy language out of your mouth, you're dead to that filthiness. Don't lie to one another, because you're dead to lying, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Guys, do you see the connection here? Do you see that if you live in the reality of who you are, then you don't have to live in the fiction of who you were? All right, so go back to 1 Peter. He's saying reject your old way of life. In my meditation this week, I simply wrote, every time I sin, I choose stupidity over wisdom. I choose ignorance over knowledge. I choose spiritual poverty over spiritual wealth. So why do I do it? Because at that moment, I am failing to see the fullness of who Jesus Christ is and all that he is for me. I'm failing to see the riches of his love for me, the sweetness of his fellowship with me, and the glories of his plans for me. I'm failing to see his example and his instruction when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when I fail to see the fullness of who Christ is, this is what happens, y'all. I become a consumer rather than a giver. I become a taker rather than a provider. My mind is ungirded, and I become just like the world and just like I was before I ever became a new creation. And so what would, what would Peter say to us? He would say, listen, position yourself around the truth of Jesus Christ. He, he, would say, he would say, fix your mind on this truth. He would say, allow this truth to guide your thoughts, allow it to guide your heart, and then that way you'll reject the old way of life. Finally, number four, he says, embrace your father's character. Embrace your father's character. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it's written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Does anybody know what book he is specifically quoting here? Leviticus. He's quoting the book of Leviticus, and there are four places from Leviticus chapter 11 all the way through chapter 20 where essentially this command is given. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I think precisely he's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 2. But I think that we want to just take just a moment here, y'all, to make a very important observation. Peter is showing us the continuity of God's commands from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. He does not say, oh, you can just get rid of the Old Testament. That stuff's really not important anymore. I just get rid of it. It's just really not that relevant. Let's just read Matthew to Revelation, and we can get all of our instructions from there. 
He's quoting Leviticus, the holiness code, and he says, this is what the Lord has said, so this is what you should do. So there's continuity. He's basically saying, you know, in verses 10, 11, and 12, I talked to you about the prophets and what they wrote and, and how it looked forward to a Savior. He's saying, don't throw those prophets away. You need to read them. You need to study them. You need to learn by them. There's great continuity. And why is there continuity? There's continuity because God's character will never change. It will never change. Now, Ron, what I ask the question is, is then why doesn't he say, well, then you need, to, you need to make sure you don't eat these certain foods. You need to make sure that there's no mildew in your tent. You need to make sure of all... Why doesn't Peter just go on and basically quote all of Leviticus 11 through 20 with all those very specific commands? Why? Well, it's because Jesus has come. He has fulfilled all of the laws of God in perfect righteousness. He has fulfilled them all. And so when, when you think about the specific commands, it's not that they're no good. It's not that we can't learn from them in some way. But what Peter is saying is I'm drawing back to this old covenant because in the old covenant, God's character is the same as his character is right now. It is holy. And so you be holy under the covenant in which God has called you, which is the new covenant, the covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and live according to that based upon the holy character of God. Y'all tracking with me on that? You're tracking with me? Good. All right, so, so uh, as a believer, you're called to mirror the character of the God who has redeemed you. I want to just give you uh, four, uh, two motivations under, under this command, all right, to mirror the character of God, reflect the character of your God. You should be holy, because your Father is holy. You should be holy because your Father is holy. Now, holiness, holiness is conforming your heart and your lifestyle to the character of God. That's what holiness is. It's conforming your character and your lifestyle to the, char to the character of God. And he's saying you should do this because this is the way your Father is. And I... I know it, it's not perfectly clear. What I'm saying there is this, is that God is your father. You are his child. Your motivation to be holy, your motivation to mirror his character is because he's adopted you into his family. He's made you his own. He's redeemed your life from the pit. He has a wonderful, truthful, glorious character that you should want to mirror. J.I. Packer, writing on the fatherhood of God, listen to what he says. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctly Christian, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. I, uh, I got one of my boys who is uh, consistently trying to be like me. Consistently trying to do the things that I do. I find it uh, flattering, it's enjoyable at, uh, at times. Uh, we will be at the sink with our toothbrush and he wants to spit his extra toothpaste out like I spit mine out. He wants to cup his hand underneath the sink the way that I cup my hand. Uh, he wants to order the same kind of donut that I order at the donut shop. 
all right? Um, we were on our way to a service recently, and, and he said, Dad, when I get to be an old man like you, can I shave my head, all right? <laughs> all right, so, so uh, he wants to be like me, but let me tell you something. I am honored by that. I'm not just flattered, I'm honored by it. Do you think that, that if I was a terrible dad, do you think that if I just despised him and found him to be an inconvenience, you think there would be that affection? You think there'd be that longing? I don't think there would be. Let me tell you something. When he says, be holy, as the Lord your God is holy, he backs it up by saying that you have a father. Look at verse 17. He calls him father. He says, and if you call on the father. I'll tell you, one reason why a lot of us don't live holy lives we don't gird up the loins of our mind is because we don't revel in the character and the love of our Father. We look at Him as this guy who's ready to just, you know, take a sledgehammer to us every time we make a mistake. We look at Him as this grumpy old man who has all these rules and laws and regulations that nobody can, can fulfill, and when they don't fulfill Him, He gets mad and angry. Listen, we've got a Father who has brought us into His family, who loves us and cares for us and is perfect in every way. We've got a Father whose character we can appreciate and long to emulate. And then finally, y'all, the second motivation is your Father is a judge. Your Father is a judge. He says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear I think the reality that I just want to leave you with is that every single person will give an account to God every single person there is popular in Christianity today two thoughts one thought is well you've been redeemed you've been justified declared righteous because of what Jesus has done Therefore, it really doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life, all right? Because you're justified, you're gonna, it's just going to be all good, all right, when you get before God. There's even really even going to be a judgment. The, the second thought is the opposite of that, is that, oh, you were justified by faith and by grace, but when you stand before God in judgment, you're basically going to have to give an account on how you earned his love and how you lived the rest of your life and he's either going to be able to say yes you did a great job after I saved you welcome into the family or no you did a terrible job go to hell neither one of those are right alright the thought is this alright you have been entrusted with much you are a steward you have been given many talents and God is to you God is wanting you to use the talents that you've been given to maximize, to magnify His great glory and His beauty and His excellence. And you are going to give an account of how you stewarded the grace that He has given to you from the time that you were saved to the time that you die. You're not going to go to hell if you're a believer. You're not. But I will tell you, there will be some embarrassment if you have not been a good steward of the things that your Father has entrusted to you. There will be a bit of regret when that happens. And there also will be repercussions. If you steward what God has given to you well, you will enjoy heaven more and you will enjoy the blessings that are there likely more.
if you don't steward well what God has entrusted to you, there's going to be a degree in which you can't enjoy or appreciate all that God has for you as much. Now, heaven's going to be perfect. And if I'm a bad steward and I don't do a good job, I'm going to live in perfection, I'm going to live in glory, and it's going to be awesome. But I'm just telling you what the text is telling you. All right? There's going to be a judgment. You're going to face the Lord Jesus one day, and you're going to give an account. And that account has some type of repercussions. You guys can agree with that at least? Well, let's live as people who are going to give an account to the Father who has loved us and redeemed us. Amen? Let's pray.